Welcome to the Landmark Podcast. I'm Jason Calhoun, pastor of Landmark Pentecostal Church in Texarkana, Texas. We encourage you to visit us on the web at landmarkupc.net for a schedule of services and upcoming events. We pray that you are blessed by the message today. Thank you again for listening. Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 11, and I want to read there beginning with verse number 1, and it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John the Baptist heard in the prison the works of Jesus, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou He that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see, a reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out to see, a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out to see, a prophet? Yea, I say unto you, And more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face. Which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you. Among them that are born of women. There hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than. Than he. I want to really focus on verse 11 tonight. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And I want to speak from this subject tonight, teach to us God's definition of greatness. God's definition of greatness. Would you lift up your hands once more with me and let's pray together that the Lord would anoint us in this house. Jesus, we need you. We need your blessing. We need your touch. We need your anointing. We need the power of your spirit to take full and complete control in this place here tonight. We thank you, God, For your word, it's already anointed. Anoint it to our hearts. Help us to be anointed to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. When describing John the Baptist, uh, there are many great attributes and characteristics that we could delve into tonight. For instance, we could discuss the supernatural touch that he received uh, while he was yet in the womb. The 
Bible says, as his mother Elizabeth stood to salute Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she uh, was expecting the Lord. It says in Luke chapter number 1 and verse 41, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, uh, the babe leaped, this is John the Baptist in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Also in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, it says, He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. This is a testimony that no other person prior to or even after uh, John the Baptist would have. John was very consecrated. We know that he had some vows of consecration that he lived by uh, that made him different from others and set apart and separate from others. And this again underscores the fact that God honors and God blesses deep commitment, deep consecration unto the Lord. And we talk about his powerful ministry and how that it drew multitudes of people out of the wilderness, even prominent people. Uh, King Herod, the scripture indicates, would come and listen to and want to hear the ministry of John the Baptist. He was his ministry was very respected. Mark chapter 6 and verse 20, it tells us about his influence upon Herod. And it said, for Herod feared John. And that word fear there in the King James Version is used many times. And uh, maybe a little bit different in a sense than the way that you and I think of it uh, in our Western mindset. But really, it meant reverence. It meant respect. He respected. He reverenced. He realized that the hand of God was upon John. And uh, more than a trepidation, uh, there was a, a, an attraction to this man because he would often come and hear him. But I want to center on that, that there was, even by this man that was king, an authority, uh, a ruler in the land, there was a respect for the ministry. Isn't that something that is lacking in this world today? It seemed like even 50 years ago the ministry and preachers, in particular pastors, were respected a whole lot more in communities than they are today. And I don't say that because I, I am one, but I say that because it's telling of a shift that is taking place in American consciousness and there is no longer the respect, not only for ministry, but the things of God entirely, uh, that there needs to be. In order for there to be revival, these are, these are some of the things that have to be revived and have to be restored in order for us to see the promises of God fulfilled. And I'm going to tell you, there is a great blessing that comes into our lives when we learn how to respect what God anoints when we learn how to respect and have a certain reverence for things that God has placed His hand upon and God has blessed and called in particularly for a purpose. And so Herod respected or feared John knowing that he was a just man. So that puts the onus and the qualification for being respected back on the preacher. 
There's a lot of people that are claiming to be preachers today that wouldn't make a swatch on the coat of a real true man of God and a true preacher of the gospel. I'm going to tell you, you've got to be just and you have to live holy and you have to have a righteous life. And uh, he observed him, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. I don't understand what all of that necessarily means, but I understand that last statement, that he heard him gladly. At least while John was preaching to the multitude and the other people, or what Herod would have probably viewed as the common citizens of the land, are the religious folks that maybe he had a little quarrel with anyway, uh, he heard him gladly as long as he was preaching to those folks. And isn't that how it is sometimes? As long as the preacher's not preaching to us, well, he's, he's a good guy and he's wonderful. But John the Baptist's ministry uh, made an impact, nevertheless, on King Herod because he realized that this was a man that was consecrated unto God. And there is a reason why this uh, extraordinary consecration was needed. There was a reason for that. There was a purpose behind that. He was going to be the forerunner. He was going to carry a message that was all important. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that more later but I just want to underscore the fact that there was a reason why he needed to be consecrated and that he could not be average. He had to be separated from the rest is because he was going to be handed something very important. And we could speak about John the Baptist's courage in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. And then in 3 and verse 10 it says, He laid the axe to the root of the tree. John was one of those fearless preachers of the gospel. Uh, he had courage. He could look people in the whites of the eye tell them what they needed to hear, not just what they wanted to hear, not just what was popular. Uh, he wasn't interested in, in necessarily their approval as much as he was being blessed and favored of the Lord. And uh, that is also a mark of a true preacher of the gospel. And somebody that really cares for a person's soul is not going to be passive about truth. Uh, is not going to apologize to a person or be sheepish about introducing the truth to them because they realize that the only way, if I truly care for this person so, the only way they're going to be saved is for me to tell them the truth. It's for me to express in detail and not leave anything out. Got to cross every T and dot every I because... Souls are hanging in the balance. And when you see it from that perspective, it will help you to understand the heavy responsibility and burden that lies upon a preacher. Uh, it isn't that he enjoys confronting, but he cannot be timid about confronting sin. It's not that he enjoys pointing it out, but 
uh, he cannot because he, if he really loves, the Bible says that we are to preach the truth in love. Some people misunder, uh, misunderstand that, misinterpret that. But when we preach the truth in love for a person's souls, that means that we're going to tell them the truth and we're not going to water it down. That's when you love somebody. Can you say praise the Lord? And again, as much as there was a reason for John's great consecration, there was a reason for his great courage that he exemplified. And when you reach into our text in particularly the 11th verse of chapter 11, John is in prison and he sends his disciples uh, to go and ask Jesus. This is an indication that he was, though he was a great man, though he was powerful, though he was anointed, and though he had the favor of God upon his life, that he nevertheless was flesh and blood and had the ability to be discouraged. And so he needed some questions answered. He, he needed a confirmation. How many has ever been there? You've done great things for God. You've been involved and seen God work in marvelous ways. You've seen God perform great things in your life. But nevertheless, you reach a point where you, you need a confirmation. And that's really what John the Baptist was asking for here. Art thou, art thou that should come or do we look for another? And Jesus simply turned to those two disciples that came to him and said there before everybody, he said, you go tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he, he added this little addendum onto it, he said, blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now I'm going to tell you, John the Baptist is about the greatest example that we have in the Scripture of a person that could have been justified, I suppose, from our human way of thinking. Not, not. I'm not. I'm not talking about justified scripturally or justified when it comes to pleasing God. I'm talking about in our own finite thinking. We would think that if anybody had done this much for God and then because of what he had done for God ended up in the prison house and surely this God that has power to do all of these great miracles has power to deliver me from this prison. But it was almost like not only was John in prison but it was almost like he was forgotten there. This was a man that had preached to multitudes. This was a man that had quite a following. This was a man that had exemplified humility by saying, don't, don't look at me. Don't, don't, don't think of me as being anything. I truly must decrease, and he must increase. Don't look at me, but look to the one that cometh after me, whose shoes I'm not even worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He, he preached about decreasing and Jesus increasing, but yet when the rubber met the road, that was a lot more difficult than it was to, to talk about it. It was a whole lot more difficult to do than it was to say. And he was now living it out. 
And I want to say that's another mark of a minister of the gospel, a true preacher of the gospel, is that he's pointing to somebody that's greater than he is. And in order for him to truly be used of God or her to be truly used of God, anybody wants to be used of God, not just preachers. I'm, I'm talking about anybody that wants to be anointed and used of God. They're going to have to decrease so that he can increase. Because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that, that no flesh is going to glory in his presence. Absolutely no flesh is going to receive any glory. in the. They will not coexist together. So if you're one of those that's constantly got to be complimented and patted on the back to even live for God, you're certainly not going to qualify for somebody that's going to be used of God. Oh, yeah. Praise God. So uh, he exemplifies somebody that's not easily offended. Matter of fact, there's no evidence. He was questioning here. He was needing a confirmation here, which all of us have found ourselves in those places. Even the great men of the Bible, we find that Moses needed this. He said, show me thy glory. We find that not only Moses, but we find that there were times when God confirmed his promise to Abraham and revealed it to him again what he intended to do, and he needed that assurance. There's also uh, times that we see uh, in the life of Job, who was considered a righteous man, that eschewed evil and loved the things of God and prayed every day, yet he needed a confirmation. And he found himself wondering uh, where he could go to feel and to experience the power of God. And uh, so it's, there's nothing wrong with needing a confirmation, yet there's a thin line there that can bleed over into if we don't receive it like we desire it, we can become offended. And... John did not allow himself to go there. We're living in a day when people are offended for the least amount of things. They, they've got to be handled with kid gloves all the time. And if that's the case, you're probably not going to make it because you're going to have to stand in judgment by people like John the Baptist. You're going to have to stand who lost his head for the truth that he was preaching, for the message that he was preaching. You're going to have to stand in line with people like the Apostle Paul uh, who was beheaded, and, and Peter, who was crucified upside down. And the list goes on and on. Stephen, that was stoned. That's the people we're going to stand in judgment with. And I'm going to tell you, uh, this is not a time for us to be uh, needing to be, you know, kind of helped along on all these little things that we should be getting down pat by this time in our journey living for God. Amen. Uh, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be the type of person that comes to church looking for offense. You're wasting your time being here. Can I just be that straightforward? If you're looking for something to critique, if you're looking for something to be uh, taken offense at, then you're wasting your time. Uh, great peace have them that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. That's what the Bible says. Praise God. When you love this word, nothing in it's going to offend you. When you love the things of God, nothing in this Bible is going to offend you because you understand that this is God's word that was inspired by him. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
And so uh, if you dislike teaching and preaching that challenges you to step up in consecration, likely you will not make it. Uh, if, if you cannot be confronted at times and convicted by what the Word of God says, it's likely you'll have trouble being saved because it flies in all of our faces from time to time. You know, the more you stay away from this book and the pages of this book and reading this book and hearing it preached, it's just in our humanity. It's our propensity. We start drifting. We lose our moorings. And we start drifting into more humanistic thought and and we start drifting into believing the ideas and the concepts of this world. But when we read this book, we start bringing our mind back into submitting to things of the Word of God which are divine. And we start bringing our mind and, and harnessing our mind back into the concepts that are true in God's Word. Hallelujah. That is forever settled. Forever settled. And the Bible said upon the word of God the world was framed. Hallelujah. So this, this is what, this is what can, puts everything in perspective if I could say it that way. That's what, that's what uh, you know, if you don't have the word of God uh, as a frame in your life, you, you don't have any constraints in other words. It, it bleeds out into areas uh, and, and you lose control and you start justifying anything and everything that your flesh desires to do. And you start giving in to the appetites of your flesh and evolve into things that you never thought that you could possibly become. I know people that used to embrace the truth, but somewhere along the way, they got outside of the frame of the Word of God. Somewhere or another, they started challenging the veracity of the Word of God. And when they did, they lost control and they became something that they never even intended to become. Because when you turn your back on truth, when you turn your back upon the things of God. The Bible said we receive not a love for the truth, we will believe a lie. In other words, we will be deceived. And the Bible tells us that those are deceived, that he would send a strong delusion to. You can read it for yourself. And he's the one that chooses that delusion that people believe. You say, well, I never believed that. You don't know what you would believe if you ever get your life outside of the Word of God. You don't know what you would become if you ever, if you ever say, well, you know, I'm going to tear down that area of solid truth in my life and I'm kind of leaving that up. You know, uh, I'm going to believe more in situational type things than I am in solid truth of God's word. Uh, That's not how you define truth. Praise the Lord. You define truth by looking into the Word of God. Praise the Lord. And it's forever settled. And so uh, you have to have faith. You know, that's kind of the age-old question among a lot of deep thinkers is, is you know, Pilate's question. What is truth? And I'm going to tell you, this is where if a person doesn't have a understanding or a belief in God, they can never get to the bottom of that question. If they don't have a faith in God, they can never truly get to the bottom of that question because right here is where it's all settled. And so it takes more faith to be 
atheist and even an agnostic than it does to believe in God and His Word. Hallelujah. I, I don't want to get into all of that, but I'm just saying we have to accept and embrace and live our lives according to God's Word or it brings chaos. I said it brings chaos into our lives. And people don't know what they believe anymore. And they get so confused and scrambled up that, that they, they, you can't, it seems like it takes, without God's help, it's impossible to unwind all of that. And so it's a whole lot better when you allow God, when you allow Him through His Word to direct and to govern your life. Can you say praise the Lord? I don't know necessarily why I get off on all those rabbit trails, but nevertheless, I'm going somewhere here tonight, and that is that the Word of God needs to be reverenced and respected and adhered to. But Jesus says in this particular text, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. I don't know if you've ever looked at that statement and really thought about it, but I want you to think about it for just a moment here. John the Baptist had a ministry that lasted approximately about six months in length. I mean, from the time he started his ministry, he was six months younger than Jesus. He started, ministry didn't start until the age of 30. So let's say he followed the pattern that Jesus followed and started his ministry six months prior. He was six months older than Jesus. So for six months until the arrival of Jesus on the scene, that's about the approximation of his ministry. In his ministry, there's none greater, Jesus said. There was no physical miracles or notable miracles that are recorded. Never were any lepers cleansed. Never were any deaf ears open, never were there any dead people that were raised. He didn't call down fire from heaven like Elijah. He never raised anyone from the dead like Elisha. He never prayed and healed anyone. Uh, he, he never led people like Moses did out of, a bond, out of bondage into uh, through or through the wilderness, he, he never led them into the promised land like Joshua. He, he never experienced any of these things. And I could go on and on with major Bible characters. Yet Jesus said there are none greater born among women. There is no one that is greater than John the Baptist. So what is it that made John the Baptist great? What made John the Baptist great? Wasn't his eloquence? I mean, he wasn't too refined. He wore camel's hair as a garment, and he ate locusts, so very peculiar diet. And you get the picture that he wasn't someone that was eloquent or refined. He didn't try to politically, you know, make his messages savvy and and, and, and like we are, are sometimes preachers feel the pressure to today be politically correct. He didn't endeavor to do any of those things. He just put it out there like it was. 
Frankly, any one of these attributes that I mentioned here before were not what made him great. They, they are wonderful and great attributes. They are not the, the thing that Jesus was referring to that made him great. What made John the Baptist great, and I want you to hear me tonight, was the message that he preached. It was the message that he preached. His greatness was defined by the message that he proclaimed. Notice that Jesus even goes further in this text, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Not only was there not one before him that was greater, but I'm thinking of a kingdom that is to come, a church that is to be established. And at the end of that, there is going to be none greater. Or there is, he, he, is, he, is, he is not going to be greater than the least of those that are part of that kingdom or part of that church. Jesus is looking ahead to a generation that would receive the revelation of the mighty God in Christ and saying that generation, that church that is going to be established on the day of Pentecost, they are going to have and receive a message and they're going to proclaim that message. And this uh, is going to make them greater than even John the Baptist. Hallelujah. What makes the church great is not its beautiful facilities. What makes the church great is not its history or heritage or musical talents or abilities or refineness. But I want to state to you tonight, it's the message that the church preaches that makes the church great. Hallelujah. I said it's the message that the church has through revelation of knowing who Jesus Christ really is, the mighty God in Christ. That is what makes the church great. That is what causes us to stand out in a predominantly Trinitarian field religious world. The term, think about it, the term Trinity is not a biblical term at all. Neither is God the Son or Eternal Son or any of those other terms or phrases that are used. But it's one that was created by man and made in a tradition, into a tradition by the Catholic Church. And you can study this in history. Uh, about a year or so ago, I was studying in a medieval class, and it was studying these different councils by the Catholic Church during uh, those times. And this was one of those councils, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., when it's very clear that this is when they established, changed uh, the understanding of the Godhead from what the apostles originally preached in the book of Acts to what they uphold and minister in their assemblies today, the Trinitarian doctrine, it was changed in that council at 325 A.D. and many other things. And, and I would just say this, that they still have councils and they still have ways of changing and altering their doctrine uh, at, at the whim of a man 
and at, at the desires of, of a council or people, and they can vote on it, and they can change their entire belief system. However, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the invisible or the visible manifestation of an invisible God. Jesus was begotten by the Spirit of God and born of a Virgin Mary. Thus, when Jesus walked the face of the earth, he was born, he was born, or, or both divine and human, or flesh. He was born of a virgin. Jesus is the one true and living God incarnate or in flesh. And Colossians 2 and 8, and also verse 9 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him which is the head of all principalities and power. We read in 1 Corinthians 5 and 11, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Jesus accepted Thomas' confession. We know that Thomas, uh, after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, some of the disciples had seen Jesus and witnessed him uh, having been raised from the dead as he had promised on the third day. And they came and reported this to Thomas. And Thomas, along with those disciples, were in a room uh, locked away. And he said, I will not believe it unless I press my hands into the palm where the scars are in his hands and unless, unless I thrust my hand into his side and feel those scars. And that's the only way that I will believe. And Jesus, the Bible says, in his glorified state, came through that wall into the room where Thomas was and said to Thomas, though he was not physically there, present, when Thomas made that statement, uh, he knew the statement that Thomas had made. And he said, Come, Thomas, reach hither thy hand and press it into my hand. Reach hither thy uh, reach hither thy finger and press them into my hand, or reach thither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And when he did, the Bible says that Thomas made this statement: "My Lord and my God." Amen. Making a proclamation that I now understand that he's not just a mere man, but he is in fact God manifest in the flesh. <laughs> Hallelujah. I have an understanding of the revelation of the oneness of God. According to the scripture, Jesus in the fulfillment, in his fulfillment is Yahweh of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament describes Yahweh as the Almighty. It describes him in other places, the only Savior, the Lord of Lords, first and last, the only Creator, Holy One, Redeemer, Judge, Shepherd, and Light. And the New Testament ascribes every one of these titles, every one of these attributes to Jesus Christ. We know that he is considered the great shepherd. We know that he is uh, the light. And John talks about that in John chapter number 1. We know, of course, that he is a redeemer. Uh, we know that he proclaims himself in the book of Revelation that he's the first and the last. We know that he is the only Savior. 
But here he is proclaiming that he is the almighty God. In Acts chapter number 9, Paul is giving a testimony of his conversion. And there's more than one occasion in the book of Acts where he does this. But he is telling how that he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was one that vehemently opposed the establishment of the Christian church. Did everything he could to resist it. He thought he was doing right by resisting it. And he had sat at the very feet of Gamaliel. So he was a man that understood the Old Testament backwards and forward. Matter of fact, you've heard me say it before, to even qualify to be a student of Gamaliel, a person had to have memorized the majority of the Old Testament. And Paul, by his writings, you can see that this was not a day when they could cross-reference themselves and go back and pick up a, a Bible somewhere on a shelf and, and, and say, well, what would that scripture make sure I get it written down just right? But they had to have it right up here between their ears because scrolls were not available to the common man just to have at any time he desired it. But when he wrote these letters to the church that we read in, in the New Testament, there's instances where he quoted the Old Testament verbatim. And he remembered uh, scriptures that to you and I would seem obscure or places in the Word of God that, that you know that he had to have a firm grasp and understanding upon the Old Testament. So what are you trying to say? Is that he knew, he understood what the prophet Isaiah was talking about when he mentioned the qualifications of the Messiah, when the Messiah would come, how he would come, and how that he would appear upon the scene. He was well versed in all of those things. And so when he's on his way with papers in hand to persecute Christians, on his way down to Damascus, and he sees this bright light from heaven and hears a voice speaking to him, the Bible says that he looked into the heavens, being blinded by this light, and said, when the voice spoke to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He replied, who art thou, Lord? And when you see that term, Lord, there mentioned by this Pharisee of Pharisees, this man that had a grasp and understanding on the old, uh, of the Old Testament like few did in that time, when he says, Lord, he's talking about the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He realizes that he's having, a, he's having a confrontation with the one that he's been opposing. And he realizes that, that the God that, that he knows in the Old Testament has intervened in his journey to Damascus. And he says, Who art thou, O Lord? Paul was a Hebrew. He was a Jew of all Jews. And uh, we know that Jewish people to this very day are monotheistic. They're not Trinitarian. They're not polytheistic. Any of those things. They are monotheistic. They believe in one God. And they believe, though they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, those people in Israel are still waiting for the Messiah. And they believe when he comes that he will come just like you and I believe that he did come that he will be God manifest in the flesh. And he, being a Hebrew, only believing in one God, the voice replied to him when he asked that question, said, Who art thou, O Lord? 
the voice spoke back and said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. At that moment, Saul, who would soon become Paul, received a revelation of who Jesus Christ really was. That it was not the second person. That it was not just a prophet or a teacher or a mere man. He, he was not uh, just a carpenter's son. Uh, he, he, was not, uh, he was not the second of anything. But he was God manifest in the flesh. He was the one true and living God. And that revelation came to him. John chapter number 10, the Jews asked Jesus, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And in verse 30, he replied, I and my Father are one. John 14, Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known the Father, known my Father also, and from hence ye know him. And have seen him. I want to underscore that word seen him. How would they have seen him? The Bible plainly says that God is a spirit. I submit that they saw him through the manifestation. Or they saw him in the face of Jesus Christ. Philip saith unto him in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and sufficeth us. And in verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Verse 10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doth the works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Jesus isn't a chip off of the old block. But Jesus stated in his glorified condition in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, this is Jesus speaking, and which is to come. And then he says these words, just in case you're wondering, the Almighty. Hallelujah. Aren't you thankful for a revelation of who Jesus is? You say, how could he say those words? How could he have made the statement like, before Abraham was, I am? Because he was not speaking of his humanity. He was speaking of his divinity, his deity. The angel of the Lord told Joseph in Matthew chapter number 1, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. God with us. Hallelujah. I know that there's been those that have distorted this over the years. There's been those that have tried to dismantle it and reconstruct something else. But Jude 3 and 4 reads, Behold, our beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation 
it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once. Everybody say once. So much for creeds and councils and position papers that redefine and revisit settled truth in God's Word. The Bible said, once, once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men, and he goes into what is going to happen, and not too many generations removed from this text being written. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then... Paul puts the same warning, in essence, out in chapter number 20 of the book of Acts. And the setting here is, is that he is leaving to go on to Jerusalem and leaving the Ephesian saints there on the shoreline before he boards the ship. And they're weeping because they know that he is not a popular guy in Jerusalem. They understand there's probably going to be persecution. There could be death. At least he's probably going to be imprisoned if he arrives at Jerusalem and is arrested and if he's discovered to be there, this is what's his fate. This is what's going to happen. And he tells them not to worry about it, but he tells them what to worry about. He says in verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. In other words, I want you to remember the things that I taught you and preached to you. And he's telling them, reasserting this, reminding them of this. It's important to note that the doctrine of the Trinity developed 300 years after the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost. Some 300 years later, approximately. And it was the product, not of a red-hot revival church, not of a church that was on fire for God and fervent for the truth, but of a backsliding church. It was the product of a lifeless, deteriorating, powerless, unanointed church. It did not come out of a revival church, a spiritual church, a fervently praying church. It came out of a dead church a lifeless church, a drifting church, a backslidden church, a carnal and cold church. All the more reason why we've got to keep the fires burning at Landmark Pentecostal Church. Because what makes us great is not this not this beautiful building that we're worshiping in tonight. It's not that 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 we have been around here for as long as we have. That's not what makes us great. Uh, what makes us great is not, not intelligence and intellect and, and all of those things. And, and they have their place. I don't believe that God uh, uh, gets any glory out of people just being dumb. But I'm just telling you, those things are not uh, what makes us great. What makes this church great is the message that it proclaims and has proclaimed for now over 70 years. What established this church, the message that established this church is the one that I preach to you tonight. And that is the revelation of the mighty God in Christ. That's where the power is. That's where the authority is. Hey, we're a Jesus-named church. 
We baptize in Jesus' name. We take authority over things in Jesus' name. Amen. We take dominion through the name of Jesus. We worship and lift up and proclaim the name. Come on, some of you guys, you ought to be a whole lot more excited about this one God message than you are tonight. Because I remind you that it was a dead church, a lifeless church, a carnal church, amen, a spiritless church that brought about the Trinitarian doctrine that has deceived many to this very day. I'm telling you, it didn't start out that way. And if we're going to keep it, it's going to be because we have a fervency and a love to proclaim it. You gotta love this message. You can't just accept it. You can't just have an idea, well, I'll go along to get along. You have to embrace this message. I'm gonna go to one more scripture, the book of Romans, chapter number one. Book of Romans, chapter number one. The Bible tells us there along about verse 20 for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. In other words, how can anybody that looks around them not believe in the reality of a God? Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power. You've got to understand that he's, he's in control. To think this came out of a cosmic collision, boy, that takes a whole lot more faith, doesn't it? Than to believe that there's a divine design involved here. And even his eternal power and Godhead. That's what we was talking about here tonight. So that they are without excuse. Meaning when it comes to the understanding of who God is. You can't pass it off and say, well, I, uh, you know what? I've heard, I've heard prominent, a prominent preacher in America made the statement. I believe in the Trinity, but don't ask me to explain it. What's he going to do with that verse right there? Well, sir, you really don't believe it if you can't explain it. I hate to burst your bubble, but you don't really believe something that you can't explain. That's why you've got to get this down in your guts, church. That's why this has got to be more than just something that you come and say amen to. But you've got to get it down in your spirit. You've got to understand it for yourself. And if you don't have this revelation, you need to ask God that he gives you this revelation and opens up the word of God so that, so that you can clearly understand and plainly see this revelation of truth. Because your salvation depends upon it. This is not a message among many messages. This is the message. Bible didn't say many truths. It said, he said that I am the truth, the way, the life. Amen. Singular. Amen. When we talk about the truth, we don't talk about it in the many roads leading us into eternity and helping us to, to make it along. And all of us are going to, we may take different journeys and we're all going to end up saying, I'm going to tell you, unless you go to the water in Jesus' name and are baptized in the name of the Lord and filled with His Spirit, you're not born again. Amen. Praise God. That's what the book says. I didn't say that. That's what the book says. Praise God. So we have to understand that. You say, well, you're preaching to the choir here tonight. You're talking to people that already believe. I'm going to tell you, I'm seeing in America today a whole different idea of what America should be from what it was founded on. 
Amen. And you know why? It's because somebody lost their love for what it was founded on. Somebody never came back and proclaimed it again. And they allowed somebody to come in and revise a little bit here and revise a little bit there. And, and let's rethink this. And let's make this more palatable. And let's do something different with this. I'm going to tell you, you can't do that with the Word of God. Because, again, it's forever settled. Forever settled. And at the end, we're going to be judged by our lives aligning itself to this book. It's not going to be some other watered-down version. It's not going to be what Joseph Smith supposedly got. It's not going to be any of that. It's going to be this book. Praise God. And so that's why we got to stay fervent and we got to be reminded. And anybody that comes along and says, well, why do we got to hear that message again? They don't have a real understanding of what's going on in the world today. They are clueless as to what is happening in society today and the breakdown of moral fiber. All the way down to what constitutes a family. And re-identifying things that are totally God's definition of the way it should be. You know, they brought a coin to him one time. Said, you know, uh, should we pay taxes? Or they was asking about that. They was going to try to get a loophole here. He said, give me that, give me that coin here. He said. Whose inscription's on that coin? It says Caesar. He said, well, then just give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And unto God what is God's. In other words, there's some things that are to be defined, like taxes, obeying laws. There are certain things that, that don't contradict the word of God, that are laws of this land, that are good laws for civility, and that we... we uphold and that we abide by and should abide by to be good citizens. And I think that's a part of being a Christian, being a person that lives for God, is abiding by those things. Let's get a clear understanding there. But that also, that statement indicates there's some things that are not Caesar's. I'm going to tell you, it's not up to Caesar to tell us when life begins. It's not up to Caesar to tell us what constitutes marriage. Those are things that are forever settled in God's Word. It's not up to Caesar uh, uh, to, to determine. And you think, man, this is really far out. We've always had freedom of religion. I'm going to tell you, it's getting constricted. To tell us how to be saved. I'm going to tell you, I've been to countries where they have a state church that everybody hears to and so they got everybody in this cookie cutter deal that is monitored by the state i've been in those kind of places and sometimes we take for granted our ability to love god and this wonderful truth of his word and to worship god as we do in this church house tonight I'm going to tell you, somebody better take a stand. Pour concrete around your feet. Make up your mind. There's some things that are not up for debate. There's some things that are not seizures. And I'm not going to let Caesar decide it for me. 
Hallelujah. But there's things in God's Word that I'll stand for and I'll adhere to and I'll continue to believe until the day I die. And this message that I preach tonight about the oneness of God is some of those cardinal doctrines that we better hold on to. We better stand for. We better proclaim. If you're thankful for the revelation of the truth, why don't you stand to your feet right now? Thankful for the revelation of the oneness of God. Why don't you lift up your hands and your voices with me right now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, yes, God. I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this message. This message... This message is what is great. It's not that I'm great. It's not that any one person is great. It's that you're great. And this message is to be proclaimed.